You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we're joined by a really cool guest who's got his his hands in a lot of different pots. His name is Michael Glassby, and he was actually introduced to me by uh, Shelby Osborne, one of our, our favorite guests of the past. So I'm really excited to meet him. He was actually co-founder of Five Pillar Real Estate with her over in the Carolinas. He's also an Army veteran and a real estate investor on, it sounds like, the syndication side as well as the, the small local kind of... Um, single family side. So Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining and uh, tell us your story. Yeah, absolutely. First off, thanks so much for having me on and uh, I'm happy to be here. A uh, little story about myself, born in the greatest country of the world, Texas. I know that comes up. <laughs> always proud, man. Always proud. I love, um, so te- I actually, I love Texas. <laughs> oh yeah. I love it, man. If, you, if you're from there, we're, we're, some, we're a proud bunch of folks for sure. Um, so uh, I actually was born and raised there, never left. I, I studied um, college, I studied business, all that good stuff. And then all of a sudden during my college years, you know, uh, uh, the tuition bug kind of got me. And so I decided, hey, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to join the military so I can get college paid for. Well, lo and behold, I jumped into the military and started jumping out of planes and all this good stuff. I fell in love with it. Boom. I decided to go as hard as I can in Army Special Forces. Right. And so I was lucky enough to actually get selected for that uh, for that process. I served a little over 10 years uh, within special operations. While I was there, I was deploying a lot, you know, traveled a lot of different countries. And then I started hitting that uh, that point, that pivotal point where I had to either decide to stay in or I had to decide to find something else. And um, after a couple of tough deployments, I elected to try to find something else. So kind of dove into a little bit of everything, tried uh, uh, multi-level marketing, I uh, tried, uh, you know, just uh, selling stuff on eBay, you name it, I tried it. Um, and then lo and behold, I found one of those three-day seminar events. I think it was a Robert Kiyosaki uh, three-day real estate seminar events. Went there and I heard somebody say something about wholesaling and it kind of just sparked a little bit of interest. Well, then I realized as, as soon as I started researching real estate, I was already investing in real estate by house hacking. Right, which is the uh, yeah. you know buy a property and then rent out the other rooms. I had a single family home, used my VA loan for it, so no money down. Rented out the other uh, two bedrooms because the three bedrooms too bad, and I was living basically rent free. But I had no idea that that was actually real estate investing. So I was like, all right, well, let's look into this. Okay, started picking it up right around 2017 is when I really uh, started diving in, uh, researching wholesaling and things like that. I had a a couple wins and a couple of losses on the wholesale side. Lessons <laughs> learned. And then I decided, um, you know, ultimately, the reason I, I want to invest was to create that income so I can separate from the military at the time, because that was my biggest struggle. And so I, I started looking at creative financing, and I was able to start acquiring properties for no money using subject twos, seller financing, and things of that nature. Along that journey, I met Shelby. You guys heard her story, and our, that, that journey or that portion of the story is uh, very similar. We decided to start the team. We started to expand and grow that team a little bit um, a little bit further. But my side of the story is I was still active duty while all of that was happening. So from January 2020 is when I finally left, but from the beginning of, uh, or the end of 2017 to 2020, I was able to accumulate almost 80 doors prior to me separating from the military. And in just a little over five years, I've been able to accumulate over 130 doors by still using that that initial kind of entry, that creative financing subject to seller financing and things of that nature while building out other businesses as well. That brings me to to today. 
Awesome. I'm just curious because we hear, uh, you know, Shelby, Alex, a lot of people from North Carolina or previously military, now real estate. Is there like a base in North Carolina that y'all are all coming oh, from? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Fort, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, okay. which is located right inside or right beside Fayetteville, North Carolina, is one yeah. of the largest military, military installations or army installations um in america and that's honestly kind of been that that common factor or that common ground that really has brought most of us together we just happen to be in the same geographic okay. location okay i was wondering I, I don't know anything about the military but i was like i was like all right this is like the fourth time i've met somebody <laughs> from, from that area that's there's got to be some connection there well cool so it's funny that you say about um you were house hacking before you know what house hacking was so when i was um when I was in college, my older brother, he's like five years older than me, he'd bought a house and he had rented out the rooms to all of us. And it was essentially, you know, we didn't know what, this was 2005. Like none right. of us had any idea what real estate investing was, much less what house hacking was. Like, I don't even think anybody had coined that phrase yet. And uh, I was telling, I was, I was talking about it the other day about at a, one of my meetup groups that my older brother happened to be there. And, uh, and I was talking about it and how it's house hacking. He goes, Oh yeah. He's like, I, I was doing that 15 years ago. Y'all just <laughs> called me cheap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was doing it before it was cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, of your, you said 120 doors, hundred, 130, a little over 130. Okay. What, what is, what makes that up? I know you, you talked about being involved in syndication as one of those, like a, a larger apartment complex or. Yeah. About, about 50 of those units would be uh, it's actually a hotel. So uh, awesome. when I just, when I jumped into the syndication realm, I decided to go the hotel syndication route. Oh, I I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I know we talked before the show and I, I wanted to hear about the other stuff, but yeah. we don't talk to a lot of hotel investors in Airbnb world, you know, 2021. Yep. So, yep. um, Tell me about the hotel and why you decided to go that route and why it doesn't make you nervous with the rise of short-term rentals. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, for the audience, uh, um, people who have been watching the kind of like the change in the economy, more people are moving towards the short-term rental market. And if you guys remember right when COVID hit, right when the pandemic hit, everybody was saying, hey, hotels are done. Airbnb is not going to happen because travel is restricted. Well, in fact, in reality, Airbnb went through the roof, right? Those yeah. who are Airbnb investors, people who actually have their properties on the Airbnb or VRBO, whatever the case is, are doubling, tripling their gross income or, or sure. even their profit margins, really, right across the board. So yeah. people still want to travel. And they love the Airbnb play. The reason we entertained hotels was because we were looking at the overall, um, the way that you underwrite hotels are actually very similar to apartment buildings. So the synergies there are hand in hand, right? So we're going to look at basically what is the rent or what is the rental income and the vacancy. And we're pretty much going to look at the same maintenance and expenses across the board. Now, with that being said, we actually focus on limited service hotels. So we don't do room service. We don't do dry cleaning and things like that because that just adds in additional income costs. Uh, streams, costs, exactly additional variables that make underwriting a little bit more hard to project. Um, but once we understood that, it's essentially an apartment building that's being Airbnb, right? Just for the, for the sake of context. And so it made it very simple for us to underwrite it, set out our projections. And during that time, uh, you know, Warren Buffett always says, uh, uh, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful yeah. when others are greedy. Well, everybody was scared. 
Everybody was scared blood, when the pandemic blood, hit. Blood in the streets. <laughs> yeah, blood in the streets, blood in the water. So what we did, we put on our, our shark attack outfits and we just went for it, man. So we were able to accumulate actually quite a few doors. We were able to get the uh, into that hotel space and the syndication space. We were able to turn some of them very quickly. And we have some with the massive amounts of equity in it that we're looking to turn around. Uh, we've been able to acquire some uh, triplex portfolios, 21 unit portfolios on the on more of that single family residential scale as well. But when we saw opportunity, we just went for it and, and we attacked it. Awesome. Tell me about the smaller deals. How did, how did you get those put together? Are, are you doing any type of bank or traditional financing? Or is this all just completely non-traditional, you know, type of stuff? Yeah. We're, so we're still doing some traditional financing. And um, for those uh, who have been trying to get loans, it's, had, it's actually been pretty easy over this past, you know, eight or nine months or so. Um, but we try to avoid the full doc loan, full documentation loan. And for those who aren't familiar with that, that's essentially where we're, you know, putting in paste out of W-2, so forth and so on. I Typical, avoid, my, my general yeah. rule of thumb is I'm not, I'm not using anybody who's selling their loan to Fannie or Freddie, like, unless it's like a large exactly. multifamily. But on my like small right. local stuff, I'm, I don't have time. I don't want an underwriting enema every time I go to refinance. Yes, that's exactly right. And we do the same process. We typically, uh, you know, it, it's coined now as hard money lenders, but essentially it's it's uh, small balance loans put into LLCs, 25 to 30% down payments, 30 year fixed, right? Interest rates floating anywhere from four and a half and six, right? But it's co we're comfortable with it when we do our underwriting because it, it makes sense. So we are still doing that, but a lot of the uh, the smaller stuff I've been able to acquire through the creative financing, right? Which would be the subject twos, which has really, really allowed me to, to uh, accelerate the portfolio growth so quickly. And then seller financing, or even doing some sort of a mix, right? Where we may do a seller financing, but only on the second position, right? We call it seller carryback, mezzanine financing. Or so talk like to me a little bit about the subject too, because... I've never done that. I've, I've half my portfolio is seller finance, but they, they nice. owned it free and clear and they just, they, you know, they, they carried the note for me, but with the, um, I've never done subject to, I've always kind of been hung up on the legalities of subject to like, is that always cool to assume the other person's mortgage or is there certain like pitfall, pit holes, potholes or pitfalls you got to watch out for. And is it, does it vary from state to state? all great questions so the concept of the subject too is where the property is deeded over but the mortgage actually stays in the original seller's name and the reason why that's important to highlight is because many people get subject to confused with loan assumption a loan mm -hmm. assumption is where you're going to go under full underwriting and you are truly assumed that full mortgage meaning that you'll do all the the full docs you'll all that good stuff and you'll pay an assumption fee so it's a little bit more in depth. So what protects the the seller in this in this subject too? They're basically they're giving away the property, but they still owe the debt. What if you quit paying them? Yes. So that that is a, a concern. So most of the time, when you're actually explaining a subject too, the reason most people cannot close on them is because they do not feel confident in handling the seller's objections, just like that, right? So in a situation where you stop paying, and let's just use uh, uh, you and I as an example, it's your property. I come to you and I say, hey, let's subject to it. If I fail to make the payment, the property forecloses and your credit is affected, but I lose the property. So we both lose. 
Okay. Now in your case, you're like, man, so what? You lost a property. You probably have a hundred of them. I'm the one that's affected in the long run. And this may be true. So what I like to do is I build in safety measures to make sure that you're safe in this, in this instance. So what do I do? An escrow, right? As soon as we close, I've set up an escrow account with the attorney and I say, Hey, if I am ever late on a payment, I want to make sure that I have enough money in this escrow account to at least pay that next payment. And if I'm ever late twice or consecutively, then I want enough money in that escrow to go ahead and deed that property right back over to you. And it's all set in the contract, right? But that way the seller feels just a little bit more comfortable with that what if scenario, that hypothetical scenario. But in the end of the day, as you're fully aware and as most of the people in the audience are, this is a, this is a relationship business. If you mess up with one seller, your name will be drugged through the streets and it's gonna mm -hmm. be much harder for you to continue to do business. Yeah, absolutely. That So, most people don't have an objection to that then. Well, you get a lot of objections, but the way I look at it is every investment strategy is just another tool for the tool belt, right? And sure. just because you can do subject to does not mean it's a good fit for every scenario. And the way I like to look at a subject to is, okay, all right, here, here's another good hypothetical scenario. Let's just say the property is worth $100,000 right now, current market value, and they have a mortgage on it. It's not free and clear because if it was free and clear, I would do seller financing. So they have a mortgage on it, but the mortgage amount is only $50,000. That means sure. there's $50,000 in equity. Well, if they want to sell it, all they have to do is put it on the open market. It's yeah. done. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to do a subject to at that point. Okay, so now let's say same scenario. They have $100,000, but they have, I'm sorry, current market value is $100,000, but the loan amount is $95,000, for example, for whatever reason. Maybe the market value sank and, they, and they're, they're underwater sure. essentially on the mortgage. Well, now they can't sell it on the open market. Okay, great now subject to might be a consideration. So it's just being able to, to fit the solution for the problem. Got it. Got it. And, and how often, I mean, how many of your properties has that worked with? How often does that, I mean, it's, it works. Yeah, it's worked. Yeah, it worked. It's, I, I would say probably about seven of the properties were subject to total and, and the way that we acquired them, whether that may have been subject to using that to just do the renovations and then sell it or if it's a subject to for a long-term buy and hold with the intent to just refinance at year two or year three, right? So it's not something that is um, common, I guess, or it's not something that has a high conversion high rate. rate. Right, right. But nonetheless, it's, again, it's just that one more piece that it will allow you uh, to, and matter of fact, let me just give you guys an example. I was able to acquire a duplex, all right? Let's say at the time, the market value was roughly about 130000 give or take, I was able to acquire it via subject to for $4,000. That was the cost of the closing uh, fees and all that good stuff. Plus I gave the seller just a little bit of money to move. So for $4,000, I was able to acquire this duplex that was worth 130,000 and the mortgage amount on it was somewhere around 115,000. So $4,000 bought me in essence, 15,000 in equity. Well, I put another 10,000 in just for slight renovations and setting up one of the units for Airbnb. Immediately, once it was live, I was able to cash flow while living in on one side, house hacking it. I was able to cash flow about $800 after the mortgage and everything else, about $800 a month. And then once I moved out, the entire building cash flows about $2,000 a month. When I went to refinance it later on, the mortgage balance was maybe 113. The property value was now 175. And I only acquired it for four grand. So you can see how a subject two can be extremely powerful to catapult sure. you to that next level. 
absolutely. And on the on the the topic, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna contribute to the topic subject too because I've never done it. But the you know the seller finance and the other part of that conversation, um, people don't realize like how much is actually in it for the seller. You know, a lot of times, like for example, several of I mean several of my properties, I can't count the number of duplexes and fourplexes I had seller finance to me because the owner had 1031 exchanged for 40 years, right? And so they've got so much tax liability <laughs> locked up in this thing that if they sell it on the open market, they're going to get a haircut, you know? And and then what are they going to do with the cash after they pay all that taxes, right? Because everything, it's not like they go buy another property discount. Everything's overpriced right now. Mm-hmm. So it just, it was really beneficial for them to, to sell or finance and be like, that's great. We'll just, you know, just pay, basically pay us an income we're not going to be able to get 6% anywhere else on our money. You know what I mean? Right now. And, and just that it worked out. We won't have to the big tax hit all at once. So they loved the idea. And in fact, they worked in a prepayment penalty because they didn't want me to pay them off anytime soon. Um, yep. So I think a lot of people are scared to ask, but you might be surprised. Like they might on the other end of the table, they might be itching to do it. And you just, you know, just seem to bring it up. Yeah, no, that's extremely uh, valuable piece of information. Because a lot of the issues that we run into when we're starting to train new realtors, uh, new salespeople, just in general, regardless of what industry it is, you have to understand that sales is not a pushy or a sleazy position. All it is, is providing solutions for the problems. And if you listen to the seller, they're going to tell you what their ailments are and what, what it is that they want. And it's your job to be able to construct the right plan for them. And once you do that, they'll give it to you. I love what you said. Sales is not a sleazy position um, because, you know, so I've, I've historically always been in sales. My day job, I manage a, a, a sales, a B2B um, fiber sellers. And, um, and I came up through that telecom company and, and I had various sales positions along the way. And I remember struggling early on and a friend of mine had me read that Zig Ziglar book. Um, secrets to closing the sale. And like the first two chapters were just on that very topic. It's like, you, you like, you have to, you have to adjust your mindset. Like I always think about before that, like right out of college, I sold life insurance and I hated selling life insurance. I hated selling people. I hated calling my friends and family and trying to sell them stuff. It made my stomach churn. I mean, I failed out of the business because I could not like, it would make me nauseous to, to call people and bother them and try and push stuff on them. And, and, you know, fast forward 15 years, I look back and like, I have life insurance because somebody pushed me into getting life insurance. I would have never in my life called randomly and hey sign me up for life insurance i just would have never done it in my life i have a six-month-old and a two-year-old and you know what i mean if if something were to happen to me like my wife would like like they'd be impoverished right and so it's like it's a hundred percent necessary that i have life insurance is a hundred percent the right thing to do and if somebody wouldn't have hounded me and called me and twisted my arm i would not have done it so like you know what i mean i don't think negatively about that person at all um, and it, and there's so many other scenarios out there where like a salesperson is really just bringing the, the effective solutions to a person that's, that's too busy to, to, you know what I'm saying? Go out and seek yep. it. We see it all. We see it all the time. You know, we try and go help customers that, you know, they're spending an extra $10,000 
a year that they don't need to be spending because it's on some old outdated technology. They just haven't updated their systems and they're, they're just like throwing, flushing it down the toilet. They're just too busy to like go out and find, you know, a solution that would solve that problem for them. And we're bringing it to them. So it's like, we're not, we're not, we're not in a sleazy position at all. We're, you know, so often, and it's that mindset that like, if I would have had that when I was 22 selling life insurance, I probably would have been very successful at it and still doing it today. But I just, I, I, I didn't have that mentality at the time that it was like, oh, you're actually, you're, you're helping them. You're bringing them a solution, you know, to their problems. I just always exactly. felt like I was, I was like, I was bothering them. So I was, I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah. It's one of the things that most, most people start off that way. Most people grow up especially in our society, feeling like sales is sleazy or pushy. Hey, I don't want to be a used car salesman, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but you're you're exactly right. It's, you know, once in you my, understand in, that- In my mind, I always yeah. envisioned the guy from, um, what was that Bill Murray show where he wakes up over and over again? Uh, Groundhog Day. Groundhog's Day. Yeah. Every single yeah. day, the insurance salesman, hey, hey, you know, he's yeah. like running <laughs> from the guy. That's who I was in my head and it was eating me alive. It makes you sick to your stomach. Nobody wants to be annoying, right? Well, at least yeah. most of us don't want to be. But uh, yeah, you're right. Once you get that mindset change and, and you understand it's just solutions, that's what the best salesmen do. Next thing you just need to do is just make it convenient and you and you got it. You got the winning formula. If you're providing convenient solutions, shit, you're going to be yeah. a top salesman. You know, you're going Absolutely. to be a top sales producer. So uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about that I heard uh, you bring up, you, you, you mentioned like uh, how your property cash flows. And I'm just mm -hmm. curious how you calculate that and what that means. And I'll, I'll tell you why, because when I first started in the, in the real estate business, my first two houses, they were, they were very, they were very good cash flowing houses and they've since appreciated, like they've doubled in value, even though they're in terrible areas. I, the market's just crazy. The fact that they did that in three years blows my mind. I just got them reappraised last week and I was shocked, but, yep. but back to the cash flow, like I bought each of them. There's like a $75,000 house and a $72,000 house and the note, like including the insurance and taxes and, um, and, and principal and interest was like one of them, it was 560 and I rented it out for 1060. I'm like, cool. I'm cash flowing $500. And the other one was like, um, the other one was like 685 and I had it rented out for 1185 and I'm like, or 585 and I had it rented out for 1185. I'm like, cool. I'm cash flowing $600. Well, as you know, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. As, as you scale, you go to property management and you have vacancies and you have repairs and then you have $8,000 sewer line collapse underneath the, you know, the slab that you have to break up. So, so now I, you know, I look at that number and, and the, that, that original number that I called cash flow is like far cry from like what I now call net passive income. And I don't really have a, I don't really have a grasp on it. Um, we were just doing the math. Uh, the other day and and I still don't like I'm still kind of in that stage where I'm like I'm like taking care of deferred maintenance like with cash flow along the way so I don't like I don't have years of data where I didn't buy anything and everything's already taken care of to really look back and say like how much am I actually making but but an adjustment I made to myself to be more realistic is um, I take the rent and I, I shave 20% off the top. You know, I, I say I'll give 10% to property management and 5% to vacancy and 5% to repair. And then I'll, I'll take that number and I'll subtract principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. And that, that remaining number is what I call 
net passive income instead of okay. instead of looking at my cash flow today i look at my net passive income now that i mean that's just assumption right and it might not yeah. even it might not even be that conservative of assumption realistically your your repairs if you have some capex event like your roof or something like you're well over five percent for the year you know what i mean but I, I feel like it's a little closer to reality and i'm just wondering like how other people look at, at that type of stuff and like what allowances you make and what your criteria is. And my criteria has evolved over time. Like originally I was just, just cash flow. Now I'm doing these burrs where I get like 70 grand in equity, like in each one. And I'm like, well, shit, I could take like, you know, I could take a little break even like I've got all these cash flowers over here. Like I don't need a bunch of cash flow if I can make 70 grand in equity. So it's, you know, it's just a, it's just a funny thing that you're constantly fiddling with, but I, I, I do it in a vacuum a lot. So I'm just curious from other people that are out there living off cash flow and you know what I'm saying? How, how are you look at those kind of numbers? Absolutely. So I, I think it's, it's important for you, how, how you mentioned that it changes over time. Because it, this, that's part of the fun of the journey, right? Most of us are going to start chasing cash flow because we are trying to replace an income, period. After you have a, a, a certain amount, right? We, some of us call it financial freedom, fat fire, whatever it is that you want to call it. At a certain point in time, cash flow becomes less important and you want to start to grow your overall wealth, that stability through equity, net worth, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think that's important for everybody to understand that it's going to be very unique to you and your goals. When I basically look at cash flow, though, just like you mentioned, I, you know, everything up front on acquisition, on right when we're about to purchase, is all projections. It's all assumptions. Everything is. We will never know how something truly performs until we have that year, two years worth of data. Period. Um, so on projections, on assumptions, I, I do just like you mentioned. I'm going to take away whatever that management fee is, and I'll, typically you're going to know that in advance because you already have that property manager lined up. So it can be anywhere from six to ten percent. I'm going to take away about 5% for, for maintenance, depending on how old the property is. If it's 1980 and older, I'm bumping it up. I'll probably go seven, maybe even 10, right? Um, and when the last renovations were, obviously. CapEx, I'm going to go ahead and tag it for 5%. But again, if a roof goes out, that 5% is out the window. Um, uh, where are we at? Vacancy, 5 to 7%, just depending on the area and the property. And then we go from there. Now, on that note, it's also... This is for long-term rentals because if what I were do to you, do Airbnb, what do you need yeah. left out? What do you need left over after you've made all those? After you've taken yeah, those so off the top? in the be, in the beginning for me because I wasn't using income, I wasn't using income to live. I was just using income to generate more investments. I was happy with one hundred dollars a door when I started. Now, to be quite honest, I'm not worried about cash flow. I, I use another metric called the debt service credit ratio. And I just want to make sure that the income is exceeding the debt by, well, the ratio I use is 1.2. Debt, debt, debt service coverage ratio? Coverage ratio, okay. credit ratio. Yeah, it's, it's referred to different manners, but that's the exact same thing. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and basically all it's saying is, hey, how much, what is your pity payment or whatever your debt obligation is versus how much money that you're making on that property? The reason I use that now is because that just lets me know, hey, how risky is this property if it doesn't cash flow, if our, just a few of the units are not cash flowing and things of that nature. And as long as I reach that 1.2, that's my bottom line safety measure. Most of them are, are 1.7, 1.9, and things sure. of that nature when I'm projecting it. And that's really where I focus uh, now as far as acquisitions. 
Okay. Could you elaborate a little bit of this? Because my bank uses the, the debt service coverage ratio, and I, I never can wrap my head around it. Um, yeah. Because I'm like, what are you including in that? Like, are we looking at insurance? Are we looking at taxes? Yeah. Are we just are we just looking at my principal and interest? And and like, are you counting the the you know the property management against me? Break down that formula for me in its most simplistic terms. Yep. Most simplistic term. You're going to take gross income, gross rental income, right? And you're going to uh, that's you're going to be your income, and your debt will be your principal, interest, taxes, insurance, and if applicable, homeowners or condos association fees. Okay. Basically, anything tied to that property for that property to function. They will not take any third party fees such as property management, okay. um, Airbnb, anything else like that. They won't, they won't consider that. Okay. Great. Okay. Well, that, 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 that sums it up. I guess yeah. I never asked the bank cause I didn't want them to think I didn't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. That's what I'm like, Oh, oh one, 1.8 DSCR sounds great. Thanks. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was going for. <laughs> yeah. So most of the time when they look, so just for the, for the audience sake, to give an example, let's say your debt, your mortgage, your pity payment, total payment was $1,000. Most banks want to see a 1.25 ratio. So they're going to want to see that the gross monthly income is $1,250. That's, that's, the, that's the baseline of it. The way that they look at it as far as risk goes, it says, okay, well, if your minimum payment is uh, 1,000, well, now we have a room for vacancy. We have room for people to not pay and we can still be somewhat safe. So if we are able to get 1.9, 1.8, 1.7, you're very strong in the eyes of the lender. Awesome, awesome. So we're, we're getting up there on time and I hadn't hit any of my questions. Um, <laughs> so I wanna, I wanna knock a couple of them out. What is the number one piece of advice you would give to somebody just starting out? The number one piece of advice, and I know it's cliche and overused, but you have to take action. You have to take action because honestly, when I, when I first started, um, I didn't know anything and I failed a lot and I failed today. Let's I mean, to be quite honest. Right there. But if you're not failing forward, then you are going to be the one sitting on the, in the back of the bus complaining about how these people are flying by you. And it's going to take you years and years and years to get started. So just take action, get started. Don't be afraid to, to get some cuts and bruises and uh, learn as you go. That's, that's, that's so, so the case. And, and I can't express that enough. There are so many people that are so much smarter than me. And like, I mean, relative to real estate, relative to finance, relative to mm -hmm. a lot of things that, that don't take action and have not accomplished a 10th of what I had. I, I, I was, somebody was asking about a friend of mine the other day and I was like, Oh, Oh, um, he doesn't have that many houses. Like he'll sit there and analyze a deal for four days until somebody else buys it. I, I'm Jesus. more like, I'm more like a, uh, like an, a shoot than aim type of guy. Like I've, I've yep. scraped my knee plenty of times, but I just like, the only thing I've ever really been good at is like taking action, you know, like, like I'm not the best underwriter. I'm not the best at construction. I'm not the best at this, but I'm willing to, to, to take action. And it's gotten me, you know, everything that's, that's so invaluable. And, um, and I don't think we hear it enough. You say it's cliche because people say it a lot, but I still don't think we hear it enough. Yeah, I agree. And, and on that point, just think about, and this is for the audience out there. Think about how many old timey investors, you know, that have five, six, 15 properties they're in their sixties, their seventies, just good old, country folk are just laid back, very, you know, uh, non-abrasive, not non, uh, 
whatever, right? They're not big. Yeah. Now think of all of these people that have doctorate degrees that still are paying off student loans at that same age. Right, right. That goes to show you, you ain't got to be the smartest person in the room to start this process. You just got to take action. And, and honestly, the, the reason, and I've told my story a million times, that's why I started this business because I wasn't smart enough to really do anything else. Right. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, silly with that statement, but, but realistically, like, you know, I came up in the, in the telecom industry and it's, it's a really complex, like technology is super complex and I'm not good at it. The only reason I came up in it is because of my sales skills, but like, I don't understand the products at all, you know? And, and I went back and got my MBA and I took some entrepreneurship classes. Like, oh, this is so awesome. I would love to start a business, but I don't know how to do anything. Like, I'm not good at anything. Like there's no particular industry I know enough about that I could, that I could like start a business in it. And then I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. I'm like, well, houses are simple. As long as like, you know, this makes more money than this. Like we're good, right? So that was like, that was like the reason I got into real estate in the first place was because it was so simple. I, and then I went to meetups and I'm like, that guy can't tie his shoes and he's a millionaire. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like this is, there's something here. This is my cup of tea, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It's the, it's like the ultimate entry point, man. It really is. Uh, most people can qualify for a home loan nowadays. Most people people. Um, and you know, all you got to do is start, man, just start, take that, that property that you used your homeowner occupied loan for live in it for a little bit and then move out of that sucker. And you got yeah. you a rental and you put no yeah. money into it. Dude. Mm -hmm. I tell, I tell every 20 year old I meet, I'm like, dude, go buy, go buy a fourplex with an FHA loan yep. and live in one of the units. You'll be rich yep. by the time you're 30. You know, exactly. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yep. So, um, next I want to hop to our radio round. What is your favorite book? Favorite book is The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. Um, okay. uh, hopefully, you know, uh, people will listen to it. Hopefully y'all pick it up. For me, it was one of the books that, that literally changed uh, my mindset and started me on this journey. Just like everything else in life, you know, we can be told until they're blue in the face, but until we're ready to hear and message, it never resonates, right? And for some reason at that point in my life, I was ready to hear it. And that was the book that did it for me. It just simply talks about the compounding of your daily actions. Again, it's something that I feel now at this point that it is kind of cliche and it's said a lot, but it's so imperative for you to understand that just one little bitty step every single day will compound to a thousand miles, will compound to that million dollars. And so many people are impatient in today's society. Like, sure. no, just be patient and understand the power of compounding. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm going to check it out. You're the, the third or fourth person that's told me about it. And um, I definitely need to, need to get on it. Um, what's your favorite quote? Favorite quote. So Jim Rohn, if you guys don't know this guy. Oh, yeah. Look him up, man. The, the OG. OG. He taught, he taught got, Tony Robbins. Yes, he taught Tony Robbins. Guy, that, the guy that taught Tony. Uh, he has so many quotes and I love studying him, but um, some of his quotes are very simple. And one of my favorites is a very simple one. He says, if you don't like where you are, change it. Yeah, That's it. He said, and then he finishes it off. He says, you're not a tree, right? You're not a tree. Meaning we have the ability to move around, but so many people make excuses about their environment or about their situation. Guys, you don't have to do any of that. If you don't like it, yeah. just change it. And as soon as you can say that to yourself, I'm you're going to feel like Superman or Superwoman, right? Where we are. But yeah. you're going to feel, you're going to be like, man, I don't need this. Bye. I'm done. I'm going to start my own business. Done. Awesome. I love it. Um, what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? 
So, uh, you know, what's funny is I like to work. And so, yeah. but I, I knew my, that question my, was coming. My wife, my wife would tell you that my favorite thing to do outside of work is uh, stress about work. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I love to work. And you know, some of us are, are just built that way. You know, um, when my way of decompressing is thinking about the next uh, venture or the next whatever sure. that we're going to implement into the business. Yeah. But as far as pastimes go, um, I actually do enjoy golf, although I'm not good at it. Let me explain yeah. that to the world. So if anybody tries to so, invite me to a golf game. <laughs> I once heard that golf is like sex. You don't have to be any good at it to enjoy it. There you go. Because <laughs> I'm living proof. I enjoy it. I'm not good. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not any good at it either. Um, well, cool. So how can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you, learn from you, invest with you? Yeah, absolutely, guys. So um, obviously, if you're looking for anybody on our team on the real estate side of the house, you know, you guys can find us over at fivepillarsrealty.com. Um, for the audience to know, I also am a loan officer, and that's really where I spend most of my time on the active income side. So if you are looking for loans within your LLCs, you guys can reach me uh, either on Instagram at michael.s.glasby, or you can just email me directly at mglasby at mcmortgagegroup.com, and I'll be able to help finance an LLC loan. In those 50 states um and you guys can just follow me on social media just to, to see the journey awesome well mike i really appreciate you joining i uh, i'm super grateful to uh, shelby for introducing us i really enjoyed our conversation and i'm i'm really and i say this at the end of everyone so i'm not stealing your language here but i really uh, look forward to keeping up with you on your journey <laughs> i love it man hey i really appreciate the opportunity it's been a blast awesome Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at Rent Roll Radio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at rentrollradio.com or sterling at crestworthcapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.